This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. And welcome to another episode of Plugged In. Uh, I am Ellie Mandelbaum, I'm an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Mike Seaman, the CEO and chairman of Digital Remedy, a digital media solutions company leading the tech-enabled marketing space he co-founded while a college student in Hofstra University. And this is going back to the early 2000s. The company has grown quickly and is now a major player within the crowded digital advertising landscape. The rapid growth of Digital Remedy formerly CPXI, which we'll get into in the podcast, led to the inclusion on Inc. Magazine's list of fastest growing privately held advertising marketing companies for a number of years. I'll skip all the exact years since there's so many. In his free time, Mike serves on the board of trustees um, at Hofstra University. He also focuses on numerous philanthropic initiatives, including sitting on the boards of HES, Hebrew Educational Society, and the Children International. Mike, welcome to the show, and I hope I covered everything. Um, but, you know, just to start, talk a little bit more about your philanthropic initiatives. Sure. Um, you know, since a very early age, since I was lucky um, to start being successful, and I was instilled with some, um, I would say, Jewish mitzvah-type values uh, <laughs> from my parents, um, ultimately I felt, why not give a little bit back? Um, you know, I started making money when I was probably 17 years old on the internet. And while that's very commonplace for most <laughs> entrepreneurs in uh, this generation, post 2000, we're talking late 90s, so like 96, um, it wasn't very commonplace for a 17 year old to be making four or five thousand dollars a month uh, selling marketing. So, because I was able to do that, I just I felt compelled to start giving back, and I started by sponsoring some children through Children's International. That's how I got involved with them. Um, before I was 20, 21 years old, I think I had a dozen sponsored children. They came to see me. I talked with them. I learned more about And this is when you're 17. So you're 17 years old. What made you want to do sponsored children? I mean, that's not like a normal, you're not even a parent yet, right? So, no. you know, you're 17 year old. Usually people at 17 don't really think about getting money from the, <laughs> getting money from the brand. Not even thinking about like, okay, I, you know, I'm going to, you know, give money somewhere. But it's definitely not thinking of other children per se. No, I, I mean, I, I remember when I was first, like I got my first check uh, from selling ads on my websites. I guess I was 17, 17 and a half, something like that. And I remember a check came in the mail. My parents still opened my mail, you know, like because I'm still living at home. I was a senior yeah. in high school. Um, and I, I remember my mom waiting for me one day after school with like a check for $4,000 in her hand. And she was like, you know, what the fuck are you doing? She was like, are you selling, are you selling drugs or doing prostitution or something? I was like, no, I'm selling ads on my website and the internet. And she was like, what are you talking about? Like, well, what is I'm, the internet? Forget about talking to your grandma today and she doesn't know what you're talking about. You're talking before anybody. She was just like, what are you talking about? And I literally had to explain the whole thing. Of course, she still didn't understand it. But the money was coming and she said, look, as long as it's legal, legal. pay your taxes, this is great. Wow. Fantastic. Okay, so 
you know, so that's how you got started, right? You're 17 year old in high school. What made you even think about like you just saw the internet and you saw, okay, this is just a play field? Like, did you? Yeah, it just seemed interesting. I mean, I, you know, since since I was 14, I worked in a pharmacy around the block from my house. Um, the internet started. My boss used to make like custom um, pharmaceuticals for children, mm-hmm. uh, like pills they couldn't swallow. He'd turn them into like you know ointments or uh, medication you could um, take orally, things like that. And I said, oh, this is great. Do all pharmacies do this? He said, no, no, I just do it custom. And I said, I said, you should be on the internet. He was like, what, what the hell are you talking about? What's the internet? And I was like, oh, we can get you listed in the yellow pages, like the yellow pages mm-hmm. of the internet. There was literally a book you'd have to go to because there's no such thing as a search engine to find. So I got him listed, Aaron's Pharmacy, and I, I built him this little website, and I made a deal with him that if we sold anything, I'd get a piece of it. You're talking to like a 16-year-old kid yeah. who convinced him of this. I was always hustling. Uh, and he was like, sure, great. We sold nothing. No one ever went to the website. There was hardly anybody even on the internet at that time. I mean, most of us were going from AOL yeah. to the, that browser and with the, we, an hour and a half. And again, this is AOL before, you know, the broadband oh, capability. Dial-up modem. dial modem, you know. So for a lot of people who are listening, you know, this is going way back. Way back. Um, and that's basically And it kept going. And then I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to start a blog. And back then, it wasn't really a blog. I was just like, I'm going to start a website and talk about teenager stuff, mm-hmm. going on dates, hanging out with your friends, whatever, getting into drugs and video yeah. games and just stupid crap, like place for teenagers to just chat and like a you know, message board. That became really popular. I ended up getting really involved into like emulators and like classic video games. So I built like a review site. Before you knew it, that blew up. And everybody was into these, you know, as broadband started coming out, people were downloading uh, Nintendo emulators and stuff like that. And I, I had one of the biggest ones. I just learned how to link exchange and it was just all about, it was always into like building, mm-hmm. but not building like websites so much. Like that was the fun yeah. part, but building traffic. Like it was just like, wow, if I can get more people and I just wanted more and more. <laughs> and then eventually there was a, an ad network opened up and I was like, I'm going to join. Put some of the ads on the site and I'm like, Oh shit, I just paid $75 in one day. And I was yeah. like, this is insane. And I was like, I'm going to build another site. So I built a celebrity site about, you know, just celebrities, every single celebrity. And just, I was like, no, there's got to be a place where people can find this information. So I looked up all the info. If you want to look up uh, how old Cindy Crawford and what's her bio and this. So I put all that together and I started building traffic there. I had these two websites and I kept scaling it and scaling it while I was in college. I was making like $40,000, $50,000 a year in college. And, and then slowly I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to scale this anymore. I want to turn into a business. I was getting to my junior year. I was mm-hmm. thinking about graduating. You know, now there's, uh, you know, Microsoft. Maybe all my friends are going to get a job at Microsoft. And they heard of this thing called Google. And what are we, you know, and I was like, oh, I got these websites. I really want to do something. And I realized at that point, um, it wasn't really about scaling your website. There was only so much you can do. This is pre every magazine going digital. Mm-hmm. People were still reading, reading. print. They were, getting, they were getting mail. Right, they were still doing that. So I was like, there's only so much scale, but there's all these websites that have unused space all over the place. No one was selling or maximizing anything. And there's only a couple networks. I mean, none of them exist anymore. We're talking Burst Media, mm-hmm. Click, all the guys oh. who sold or really went under at one point. And I was like, I gotta talk to all these web guys. They all want traffic. So I would reach out and say, listen, I'm, I'm from these sites, I'm not looking for traffic, I wanna buy your ads. You wanna buy my ads? Great, what do you pay me? I can pay them anything, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, mm-hmm. $10, they just wanted more money. Yeah. They're like, wait, I can get more? I was like, yeah, I'll take this little spot. Like, oh, nobody wants that spot, I'll take it. <laughs> and I ran some performance marketing stuff. I was signing up with affiliate networks and I would just arbitrage it and figure out a way to do it back then. And lo and behold, it, it worked. 
And all of a sudden I was making margin doing that and I said, this could scale. Met some people um, in college that were interested in web design and growing yeah. stuff and we kept building ad servers and figuring out how to do it and slowly but surely it kept evolving into the space we know today is ad tech. So that's perfect. So, you know, before we get to CPXI and, and how you took your, you know, your, your hobby as a 17 year old through you know, college, et cetera, you know, is there some, when you were doing all this, is there some like an oh shit moment that you had when you were like, you know, crap, I just, you know, f- you know, fucked up or I did something really bad, you know, or, you know, it was just something that you failed at in that time and you said to yourself, okay, I can't do it again. And how do you overcome that? Um, I guess, I mean, if I'm going to think, I mean, there's a lot of oh shit moments. I've been doing this for 20 years. There's a lot of I should have done that. This up, um, throughout it. But I would say the first, the first real oh shit moment I think was, um, I don't remember exactly the year. It was early on. It was probably, the, uh, I want to say oh two, oh three. Um, and we were really trying to scale hard. I mean, when I say we, there was four of us. <laughs> but back then, we were really trying to scale hard. We were, trying to bu- we were buying from networks because now networks existed. You had ad.com just opened up yeah. and guys like that. And so they had volume. And we were like, they didn't know what they were doing in performance marketing. So we would sign up for affiliate networks. We'd get money from affiliate networks and we just arbitrage the space because nobody understood that. There wasn't a lot of performance marketing back then like there is now. Um, so what? So we got into some area where we ended up owing a lot of money for all the media we bought and we weren't getting paid on time, right? The, the mm-hmm. typical DSO, DPO struggles of a business. Um, but now this was a business of four 22-year-olds who barely were running things on credit cards and yeah. had no lines of credit. And, back, and this wasn't like in the startup days of today where you can raise a million bucks in five minutes. And so we got into a place where we literally, me and, and my partner at the time, I think had to borrow either 25 or 50 grand from our parents. We had to beg them. And they were like, get out of here. And so he borrowed from his mom and dad. I borrowed from my mom and dad. And we paid our publishers and we got our DPO done. We finally got the money back. We paid. And they were like, holy shit, you actually paid us back. And <laughs> yeah. You know, it was just like a week. But, yeah. but in that yeah, period, yeah, we needed like, a float. Right. And then we were like, you know, obviously we could raise money. We can get bank lines then. But we said, no, what we really need to do is we need to manage this process better. We need to negotiate better, you know, DPO. And we need to go negotiate better DSO. We need to not get caught up in scaling so fast beyond what was smart, right? So it was like, yeah, great. We can buy a million dollars worth of ads this month. But if we only have $150,000 in the bank, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So we had to scale slower, but more conservatively. So we built up, you know, and learned how to really build a business based on profits and cash flow, as opposed to a lot of these guys who later on came out. And, you know, raise five million bucks. And then before they know it, they're in the whole three million bucks. They went bankrupt. I mean, there was no way to do it. You no, know, it's funny you, you say that. And that is a valuable lesson because you've been around. I mean, you've seen companies. I mean, there's like, oh, yeah. you know, companies in the space have come and gone. And you guys have stayed the course. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean you've been around since what? Uh, 2001. 2001. So, I mean, if you're talking about you know, 18 years and you are, you know, growing. And we'll get to that. So let's get to that now. So CPX, so how do you come up with the... You know, CPX. So after college, you building sites, you know, mm-hmm. taking the initiative, saying, okay, there's nothing here. Let's build it, get traffic, put ads on it, get paid. And when did that say, okay, let's build into a real, like, 
sustainable business. So we were we were running a business. We were running an LLC. There was a couple guys that owned it. Three of us. Mm-hmm. We were bringing in more people. We grew to about thirteen folks. Um, we moved out of our first office in Rockville Center. Rockville Center. Um, I grew up in Long Island too. So, so we, we started in Valley Street in my parents' house. Uh, <laughs> when we finally could afford an office, we went to Rockville Center, and then we moved from Rockville Center to Long Beach. There's probably about thirteen of us. Um, and I don't know when it was. We were just, you know, we were running the business. No, nothing specific. I think we called ourselves Buds Inc. or something mm-hmm. like that because we were just friends. <laughs> they were making money. And one night, I just, I don't know. I woke up one morning and I was thinking about a new name. And I was like, everybody was value click, fast click, mm-hmm. list click, that click. And I was like, this, no, there's other metrics that make sense. And then I said, CPX. We'll do anything. We'll do CPC. We'll do CPM. We'll do cost per install, cost per lead, whatever it was. I said, we'll call ourselves CPX Interactive. And it came down to part of that. That's a great name. Let's do that. So we called ourselves CPX Interactive. And then later on, as we grew and eventually wanted to rebrand out of that, we're not 13, 14, 25 people. We're a real company in Manhattan. We're 100 folks. That's when you know we finally brought in our first real you know CMO level type person who said, CPXI, we're going to drop the interactive. And that's when we rebranded to CPXI. Say maybe I don't know six, seven years ago or something like that. Got it. So, so with that, right? So, you know, when did you start seeing? Tra- I mean, you were seeing traction early on, mm-hmm. but when did you start saying, okay, the tipping point happened? Like, you know, we're 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 no longer just you know, you know, fly by the seat. We have a, a roster of clients. We're really established. We're getting established in the company. Yeah, I don't know. If it, I don't know if it was a money thing. I think it was more people thing. People. Okay. When it got to the point where. You know, I'd say, uh, I mean, you can find it in any probably Harvard review, business review magazine or any business books you, you, you read. But once you get past that 50, the 50 employees, I think that's like the number. And it's probably, there's probably a revenue number too. It's probably 5 million yeah. or something like that. But we were scaling so fast, we were beyond that. Um, but when it finally got, and we, you know, we were making like a million bucks an employee at one point. So we were crazy in those internet days. It's not the same today, but when we were doing that. So I think it's, it's when we hit that 50, when you couldn't be like, oh, who, who knows someone we can get in here to, to run more accounts for us or buy media? And it's like, oh, I got a friend that's dying to get into this. Yeah, I play poker with him. He's a buddy. On, yeah. I'll bring him in. You know, and it was always like, you know, I hired all of my friends. And then they started hiring all of their friends. And eventually you got to that 50 point where you were like, you know, yeah, I guess you do have a friend that you might play cards with on the weekends. But I don't want to hire that guy anymore. I actually want to, like, find real people who, not, not that they're not real people, but who have experience because we don't have time to just train. train. You know, we're in a place where we can hire people from other companies. So it's kind of like when you get that first recruiter or you start trying to actually recruit from outside that inner circle, mm-hmm. which is that core 50, where you're finally like, all right, I'm starting to hire people. I don't really have any, you know, first degree of separation to now this is, this is the real deal. I'm actually, I'm actually responsible for people with job, people with lives, who have families, mm-hmm. who have kids. I may still be 26, 27 <laughs> years old, but you know, yeah. when you fire your first 35 year old sales guy, cause he's not pushing numbers and he's starting to tear up because he's got a wife and kids at home. You're like, holy shit, this is like, I'm really responsible for some serious shit. Like this yeah. guy, his life is counting on me to continue to run a successful company. Now I'm counting on him to sell or whatever right. it is. <laughs> but at some point, yes. you know, you start to realize like, yeah, I'm making or breaking like, people's lives, their income, their bonuses, like they're living their lives off the success of this company. That's my responsibility. And you start to feel that I think beyond 50 people because there's a big group of people you don't know anymore. Uh, Yeah, I hear that. And so, you know, it's funny, 
you know, you're one of the, you know, people don't really talk about, okay, when you're growing, especially back then, growing that fast, you're just like hiring people. Did you find that the people that you hired early on, were they, they stay with the company a long time? I mean, because again, you invested time in them, right? You taught them how to do things. You taught, did they stay with you or did you find them, okay, when you grew to a certain number, they were just like, I got to get them up, was it not? No, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of sort of like, realistic numbers I can put towards it but I'd have to say that I that at least uh, I was gonna say 25% but I'll say at least 20% of the people that work for this company probably have been here close to a decade Wow. I mean we have some of the longest tenure in this space at all but that's a testament to the culture we run mm-hmm. the people we have how we treat them how we organize how we live like a family but I've got you know I can look back on those days in Long Beach which was even before our first major office in Westbury and I can say, you know what, out of those 13, 14 people, you know, I can definitely count. I can, I can definitely almost be out of the five fingers on my one hand going, yeah, five of them are still here. Yeah. And I can go back to that office in Rockville Center and go, you know what, there's still three of us here from that office of six. Yeah. Obviously, some of them are partners and people yeah. like that. But yeah, there's still half of us are still here from when we started that business. And I would say a handful from when we were 13. And when you go back to the 50, albeit after we, you know, um, sold off through M&A, one of our divisions um, that I'm sure we'll get into and talk about, many of them went with that transaction who were here, we're here since then. But when you look at that Westbury office where we were 50, 60 people, yeah, there's a good a good 50% of those that are still with us. And you're talking 06, 07. You're talking a long time ago. So, so just perspective-wise, so you, how many people do you have now? Um, depends where we're locations we're talking about. So in, in, in New York City, in our headquarters, we have over 100, so like 110. Mm. We've got about 30 or so in New Orleans, a couple on the West Coast and scattered. Um, and then we have separate operations in Asia, um, mm. like completely separate, separate finance, separate yeah. HR, separate, like they, we have nothing to do with them, they have nothing to do with us other than we own it and we've built it and it has a branded name to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we got about another 120 there. Oh, so it's, 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 so it's all about 250 people or so between both, but it's separate subsidiary that we just owned, although we created it. We created it. So, but this org- the organization known as Digital Remedy that operates for our current mm-hmm. client base here, I would say it's in the 150, Got 160 it. range or so. Interesting. And how do you find, you know, just what we're here is all the company culture, right? So that's a unique, it's, it's, it's important when you're growing, especially, you know, like you're saying, after the 50 mark, you're like, okay, you know, people are picking up on vibes. People, you know, yeah. you know, the atmosphere makes a difference, right? So how do you keep the company culture? How do you create it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of like anything, you know, if you read, you know, if you read, uh, you know, a good book that comes to mind is Sapiens. If you, if you read about sort of humans and, and, the, and, the, and the human sapien species, it's all about stories. You know, and, and, and growing beyond that 50 number, you know, and certain animals and certain um, species of monkeys and other species, they can work in groups of up to 50 because it makes sense. You know everyone in a group of 50. When you get beyond that 50 number, there has to be a common story that you can believe. We're, you know, we're both Jews. We're both Muslims. We both come from New York. We're both here. So I can somehow relate to the fact that this made-up border called New York I live in that circle, you live in that circle, that must mean we have a common interest, right? And so it's the same of building the story of the history that's here, why we exist, what our values are, what we believe in, what we believe we're accomplishing, that family culture of, yeah, you may be my, my, my 14th cousin once removed, but somehow you're part of this digital remedy family 
because you're here, because it provides you with what it provides you. It's that culture we have common friends and common links. And so you, you build that culture in that way and you have to believe in it. And then everyone believes in that story and everyone wants to create that success for everyone. Got it. So, you know, how do you, you know, after you, you, you were CPXI for a long time, why, why do you rebrand? And there is a lot more to the story, which, you know. Sure. You know, so, you know, you rebranded to Digital Remedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, I think you also created, um, well, let's first say, you, re- you really didn't raise any outside funding, right? So this is bootstrapped or self-sustained. Up until a certain point. Up until a certain point, which yeah. was rec- it's, uh, recently. Um, I mean, what, five? I'd have to say five, six, five, six, years, years, five, six years ago, we raised a round of capital. Um, we got to the point where, look, you, you know, you're running a business for well over a decade. And, you know, some, some co-founders come and went. You bought people out. You did things like that. But now you're going, all right, you know. I'm, I'm an adult now, I'm in my mid-30s, I'd like to take some chips off the table. Mm-hmm. And really the only way to do that, especially when you're cash flowing a business bootstrap, is to raise something. You raise some debt, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you raise a little equity, you do that. So we did raise a round um, you know, in, the, in the 25 million plus range of debt and equity. Um, and we went down that path, we did everything right, we continued to run the business with the normal ups and downs and hiccups. Our lender ran into some troubles in, in what they were doing and doing some stuff and they wanted to, us to recap the debt and we missed a couple covenants. It happens, nothing mm-hmm. major, but everything was running smoothly. We were paying our, yeah. our bills on time, but you know, sometimes things happen. They wanted, so we went on around to raise and recap the debt and go that process. And we found an opportunity to sell off one of our divisions. At that time we had, you know, a, a, a demand focused division and a supply focused division um, and a direct response focused division. and. We found a buyer for our supply focused division that would be more than enough to then pay that debt back, pay all the taxes that Mm -hmm. were needed in that transaction and take a few more chips off the table, which was great for everyone (laughs) uh, involved um, because it was a couple years past the last round that Mm -hmm. we got to do and we were able to clean the cap table up, get the debt out 100% completely. So we negotiated all of that. Um, We sold off Be Real Time, which was our SSP Mm -hmm. um, to Engine Media. And post that transaction, we took a couple chips off the table, we paid off the debt, we recapped everything, and now we're back to three owners. That's it. And no one else on the cap table, nice and clean, <laughs> running the business completely again. And we grew it back um, to previous levels in terms of EBITDA and profit. And we felt like, all right, why are we going to, you know, CPXI was known for having a supply side platform, mm-hmm. a demand side That's platform, cool. a direct response division. We said, look, we're now only on the demand side. Now's a great time to rebrand that mm-hmm. we sold that asset off so people can understand that we're a different company now. So that went through the whole process. We came up with a couple ideas of different names. We hired someone new in marketing and we ran it by the company and everyone agreed that, you know, that was the right name and it made sense. And uh, here we are today. Here we are. So, so, you know, talk about be real time for a few, a few minutes, right? So, you know, that was a header bidding you know, company on the supply Correct. side, right? When did you realize, like, again, it was this is going back, I think, 2010 it started, right? Something like that. And that's early, somewhat early on. Yeah. I mean, you know, when did you, you know, see the, when, you know, changing direction? I mean, it was, back then, again, a header bidding wasn't really huge. It's been a lot more prevalent, you know, header bidding sure. programmatic. But 2010 programmatic mm-hmm. really wasn't around so much. Correct. We were in the network space. Right? We, we managed a network of publishers, we managed a network of advertisers, we bought and sold that media. We saw what was changing and shifting in the programmatic space, really embraced the programmatic space from the demand side. We were buying on a lot of exchanges, we were using exchanges to monetize a lot of the publishers in our network. And we decided, look, you know, 
this is splitting apart. There's going to be separate supply. There's going to be separate demand and how that's going to operate is big enough that it's going to, you know, disintermediate that network effect. So we started a demand side business. We started a supply side business called Be Real Time. Originally, we were just an SSP. We were aggregating tags. We we're managing that for publishers, that whole infrastructure, mm -hmm. exactly what happened. And then as we started seeing it flow programmatically through RTB and we saw that opportunity for header bidding, we said, look, this is, this is the direction things are shifting and we need to jump on it quick. So we started linking up with publishers and it allowed us to scale very quickly because it allowed us to compete with then the Rubicons, the PubMed, and the OpenXs, who had a stronghold and had built it because of raising a lot of venture capital and hiring yeah. a lot of people. They got in that pub space harder than us, and now with header bidding, it sort of embraced an equal footing to, well, anyone can now get their feet wet. No one, no one could lock up inventory. Um, so we embraced it well, we jumped into it, we grew really fast, and that's what ultimately allowed us to take that exit on Be Real Time. Got it. And so, so you, you, you know, sold off Be Real, Real Time, and then you also made some acquisitions, you know, during that, during that, you know, process, right? I think 2013 was AdReady, and then you did mm -hmm. Spin Media and Crowdair. I mean, how did, that, how did that all blend into where you are today? Um, learnings and mistakes. <laughs> Um, you know, AdReady was just one of those things. Um, I remember, I, I believe it was uh, Terrence Kwaja at Luma, who at some point I was talking to him for whatever, we were just catching up on industry stuff. And he was like, you should look into AdReady. So I started looking in, they were looking for a lot at that point. They were still thinking something great was gonna happen with the business, they weren't sure, but they were looking to sell and I just, they didn't wanna do it for the numbers I wanted. And, mm -hmm year went by and they were still on the block and conversations happened and you know the investors were just looking to get out and I said great here's an opportunity I met the team it made sense we took it on because it was just seemed like a no-brainer and you know many years later rebrand not rebranding it but using that name but rebuilding how it operated and what it did and putting new teams in place and stuff we were able to use that as our platform and evolve it into the platform we have today um, and really take a hold of it and value on the, on the spin side. Mm -hmm. You know, we were still trying to play in the content space. We acquired a couple properties. We only have one still today that we acquired, which is still doing fairly well. Um, I would say it was a good acquisition no matter what. It kind of fell in our laps. Which one was that? Uh, that was CelebBuzz. CelebBuzz. Yeah. So, I, you know, they were, spin was selling to Prometheus at the time, which I believe was Billboard. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't want three assets. Um, Celebas being one of them, but we were able to take all three because they needed to close in like two, it was like two weeks before Christmas. <laughs> and I knew the CEO and he was like, yeah. look, you can take it, but here's what I need. And we were a partner of theirs, so they had owed us some money for buying it. Mm. It's like normal, yeah, not, yeah. not in a bad way. And he was like, look, if you can just forgive this so we can close our deal and walk away and not have to pay you, we get to keep a little bit. Yeah. And so we we're like, eh, well, we can forgive that. It's a couple hundred K and whatever else and we'll work out an earn out and whatever. And he was like, great, you can take the profit. And so we transferred them before Christmas. We took them, but it was a good, it, it was a beneficial transaction for us at this point because yeah. we've made our money back, you know, a few yeah. fold on that. Um, but yeah, only one of the properties stuck. We're still operating it today. It's still, I mean, so it's funny because I remember, you know, early on in the conversations, like, you know, you started, you know, yeah. aggregating your celebrity site yeah. and, and Celebuzz is a significant, it got back into it. So yeah. <laughs> it's funny. And then crowd here as well, right? So crowd here, you know, talk about that and, and, and how that, you know, where that fits in your ecosystem. Um, we actually parted ways with Crowd. Okay. Originally, that was part of a higher end, it was sort of an aqua hire thing. Okay. Um, we weren't able to, you know, take that 
entity and bring it to the right area and there wasn't uh, a huge fit in with management and how we were going to run that so we you know i would say not like other companies but because of how we do things in our bootstrapped way of doing things we just said you know what you take the asset back it's all good there's no harm done and it makes more sense that way so we worked out an exit strategy in that regard and that still exists which its original founder and how awkward was that, that, that conversation? Was it like for you awkward or just like, you know, um, it's just, you know, not worth the trouble in a sense. Like, just, I mean, if you, you know, if you, uh, if you're open to the realities of business and running a business, <laughs> it's, it's just a conversation. It's, you know, we're not going to invest more, more, more energy into this. Mm-hmm. You're focused on, on part of this is one of your core things. You should continue to run that. It makes more sense. And, uh, you know, that's how. It went. I mean, it was a pretty simple, simple transaction. Things like that have happened before. I've, I've mistakenly acquired things. Not that that was a mistake, but other things that I've mistakenly acquired that either went went bankrupt or we've parted ways because it didn't make sense. I mean, look, you know, you, you talk about when you talk about trials and tribulations and you talk about successes. You know, the reality is when you talk to business, you talk about how you sold the real time for almost fifty million dollars and you built yeah. this business and you've got this hundred million dollar empire and all. Yeah, and I can probably point to half a dozen mistakes of failed divisions what, what, and failed ventures exactly. things we thought were going to be the home run well, yeah. influencer marketing yeah. or this and we spent $400,000 building this machine and that machine and this <laughs> piece of software <laughs> and they all and they all went nowhere oh, yeah you know, so it happens. Yeah, you know, agreed. That's the reality. Agreed, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I always ask, you know, in terms of failures, because again, it's not, nothing is always rosy, right? I mean, no, you know, for every couple of hits you have, you have a lot more misses out there. Oh, wow. And, that's, and that, as an entrepreneur, I mean, that's your life. I mean, oh, you, you don't, you, you take a big swing and sometimes you hit it and sometimes you don't. And as long as you do it in a calculated way, exa- exa- it's in. And when you don't do it, this is the question then is, do you beat yourself up about it? You know, like, you know, some people really like hold on to it, right? It's the they can't let it go and, yeah. and the key is just like okay done move you on. have to accept it that, yeah, that, exactly. that's the way it is it's never your first idea that's what i you know when we run these entrepreneur competitions at uh hofstra and what i always say every time before it starts i always tell them i said well this is your first pitch or your 27th pitch it's not your last and it's not going to be the one that you're going to remember for the rest of your life dreaming about you'll remember it because it was an experience but whatever idea you have right now 99% chance it's not going to be something you're going to turn into a business, but it's the experience, it's the learning that's going to take you to the next step. And as long as you keep persevering and keep going at it because you want to be an entrepreneur, you will find that right product, that right business, and you will be successful. But you can't feel that it's a failure because every time you step up and make a presentation and put your life on the line to try to build a business, that's taking you one step closer to being your dream entrepreneur. Got it. So, you know, we're going to move on a little bit more in terms of the current model, right? So we're, we're, Digital Remedy now is you know, more, on, I would say, you know, it's, you know, you have AppNexus, right? You have Media Math. You have a lot of them. You know, you're not, it's, you know, when people talk ad tech, Digital Remedy really is like the, the quiet monster, right? You know, people don't realize how big you are. Right, so just give a little bit of you know, I would say context to, to that. Like, you sure, we sit on the on the on the ecosystem. Yeah, I would say, look, um, you know, we're we're typically not we're not typically running in a, we're not running an IO based business. I mean, it's not what we do. We're not we're not banging on the doors of advertisers and agencies asking for you know a hundred thousand dollar RFP or this uh-huh. RFP. What we're doing is we we create partnerships with other 
media companies and other advertisers, whether it be direct advertisers, direct brands, mid-tier agencies, um, sell-side players, you know, local cable operators, MSOs, guys like that. And what we do is we provide a full digital solution across every channel. So when I say every channel, I mean every channel. Digital at home, audio, OTT, obviously display, mobile, search, social, native, every solution you can possibly imagine. And what we do is we aggregate that data and we run it through our platform in terms of execution. So where we sit is everything from RFP to invoice. Um, as a solution, white labeled in almost 70% of the cases for our end client who needs to do that, right? So, so clients who have unique proprietary data, who need audience extension, um, who are mid-tier agencies that don't have an executable platform and need a trading desk solution because they're not part of a WPP that has access mm -hmm. or something of that like. Um, and they come to us for that fully managed service trading platform or even self-service in some cases to use that solution. They can come in, they can build RFP, they can figure out what the best traction for this. Hey, I'm looking for in-store foot traffic. This is my budget, what am I looking for? Well, you spend this on social, this on search, this on OTT, this on, okay, here's the CPMs, here's the budget, how it works. Yes, you approve, we'll create that into an IO. Our teams will then take that IO, go out and execute it. Where does that need to go? It needs to go on Facebook, Instagram, um, Google for search. It needs to go to you know, three different DSPs to test out each algorithm to see which one performs better. Here's five different data vendors and we're contracted with all of them to execute that. And we'll push that everywhere. We'll roll in all that data via APIs. We'll pull mm -hmm. that back and we'll put that into a platform where they can easily see what's happening, see the results of that, as well as our teams managing, are we hitting budget? Is it hitting daily budget to need to ramp up, ramp down? Are they hitting KPIs, ROIs, viewability, CPC, whatever their goals are, we're making sure that's met through our, what I'll call proprietary data. And, and the, the misnomer and why most may not know us is because what we'll think of as that, what we'll call that proprietary data, right? And most look at proprietary data as, can you pinpoint Joe and Susie? And I'll say, no, I can't pinpoint Joe and Susie. <laughs> but I know who can pinpoint Joe and Susie, who can't pinpoint Joe and Susie. I know which websites that Joe and Susie likely go to that will have the conversion rates, the viewability, and I know which placements on those sites they're most likely to see the ads at because we've been buying on them for 18 years. So when I say proprietary data, I mean the proprietary data that helps you decide how you're gonna hit these campaign tactics and make them work. I.e., do you use Xlate, do you use BlueCut, do you use this segment, do you use that mm -hmm. segment, do you use Crocs, do you use um, Lodomy, right? And which one of those vendors has the best data for this specific demo because we've used it before, which whitelist of websites do you use to make sure you're not hitting NHT traffic, to make sure you're only buying placements that are either above the fold or middle of the fold where you're gonna get the metrics that you need to succeed. People don't have that, that's proprietary to us. That may live in our AppNexus, TradeDesk, uh, Amobi and Simplify accounts in terms of how we set up but they're not owned by them, they're owned by us. And those algorithms and how we make those decisions and make things work is what makes us the best at what we do and why our clients stay with us over and over and over again for us to execute and hit those KPIs. Got it. Uh, you know, so we're gonna, 
I have another about five or so minutes here. I want to talk about your management skills and, and why you are an effective, you know, CEO. I mean, what do you think, uh, you know, keeps you in, you know, the top where you're, you know, successful being, you know, the you're growing nicely, you're, you're keep hitting the numbers, right? So there has to be something you're doing right, you know? And so what do you attribute to it? I mean, do you have certain tactics? Do you have certain methodology that you use? I would, I would honestly, I would say I, I attribute it to not doing anything right. Um, <laughs> as funny as that sounds, um, you know, what I've always prided myself on since I was young and I started it, right? Cause I was always the kid and I always needed to learn right from everyone and I always prided myself on you know I don't really know shit you know I didn't study business in school I studied computer science I never really coded much when I got out I hired other people to do the coding um, I really just prided myself on f building a circle of people that were willing to teach me and I was willing to learn from I can probably be a CFO right now but the only reason I can be a CFO is because I've hired great CFOs my entire career who would teach me and not just you know, run me through shit, really explain things to me of how things work so I can learn. A good COO, a good CFO, a good CMO, a good head of sales, really, and, and, and help me understand what's the power of a CRM? How do you train salespeople? What's the best way to sell? And I've turned myself into a great seller, a great finance person, a great marketing person, a great operator um, by doing that. And I continue to do that. I continue to put the right people in the right seats and let them do their job. And I think that's what makes me a great leader is building trust in people and ultimately being able to read people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always been a pretty avid poker player and a good reader of people. And I think going with my gut, you know, reading the room and understanding people and making sure it's the right person to hire for the right role and giving them the time to build and learn from them and let them run. I think that's what I'm, that's my skill set. But I think that's a skill set that all leaders should have. Correct. And so how do you find the right people? I mean, you know, especially when it comes to your inner circle. You find the right people by finding the wrong people. <laughs> it's just like failure. You find the wrong people and you unfortunately let go of the wrong people and you, and you eventually find the right people. But I think, I think it's less about, I think the words finding the right people are somewhat inaccurate if you don't add finding the right people for the right time. Mm -hmm. um, because I think different people fit for a different period. And I think as a leader and as the CEO, some CEOs have to accept that they only fit for a time period unless they continue to progress and mm -hmm. grow. For me, I've been lucky enough to fit all the time because I've been able to sustain the business running the way it has as its leader. But, you know, I've always had to cycle through different C-level, different executive levels. And I wouldn't say, I would say, way over 50% have been successful, way more than failures, um, when you put that end statement at the right time. Because mm. obviously the only people that have been successful in the C&E level are the ones that are still here today, if you're gonna look at it that way. But that doesn't mean all the previous ones weren't successful mm -hmm. in that time period. And you grow with people. There are people who understand the finances of running a $50 million company. There's people who understand how to operate a 50 person company. But then you have to know when, you know what? I now know as much as you, and I need someone who knows how to take this from 50 people to 100 or 50 million to 100 million and beyond. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can keep pinpointing that and understanding who's right for the right time and treat those people right and let them exit gracefully and right when that time comes, then you will have that sort of you know, understanding of whom you are as a leader in the market 
and those people at that next level will want to come work for you to help you grow because they know you treat people right and you build a great culture. Got it. So we're going to, you know, a few more questions and we're going to go back to the personal side now. So I know we know at 17 what you were doing. What did you want to be when you were 15? Did you know you wanted to be in business or did you have some other, you know, idea, some, you know, I always knew I wanted. I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Always. I always wanted to build my own business and be the boss. I just always wanted to run things. I always wanted to be the the the, the end, the top of the mark, and 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 build people up and grow. And just it was a, in in a negative way, it was a power thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I just always wanted the power of controlling and doing yeah. that. Um, but in a positive way, I wanted to use what my skill set was to help people and take care of people and do good things for them. Yeah, well, which is what you do with your, 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 you know, your charitable endeavors as well. Um, and so is there a habit that you do on a daily basis that keeps you focused? I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, I would say the main thing um, that you can ask my fiance is I literally get up every morning and work out. Every morning I'm up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, two things. I get up every morning at 6, I walk my dog, <laughs> drink my coffee, and then I either go to the gym or I box. Got it. I would say maybe I take off one day a week, and that's like a Sunday. <laughs> but every day of the week, it's the same routine Monday routine. through Friday, and, and it's just not the same day. If you don't get if that, I don't, if I don't get that in and clear my head and know this is what I'm going to do today, this is what's happening today, and I get that time to sort of wake up. Got it. And on the productivity side, right? Is there something that you suggest to founders to be more productive? Um, one thing I always do that I learned in like, I think it was the life, a life hacks book, um, was I separate my inbox into, I have two folders in my, off my inbox. I mean, I have lots of folders off my inbox, but two main folders I have, I have one to do and two to do. And so every, every time I just sit and I don't dwell on answering emails, I move them. If it's a one to do, it means I got to answer it. If it's a two to do, it means I have something I got to follow up on. And then you know, I, I say I schedule time, I don't really schedule time, but then when I have some time and I can pay attention, I go to my ones and I answer them all in succession and I just focus on that and then later I'll follow up on my twos. But this way, I always see what's coming in the inbox. I, I got lots of employees, I got lots of people who are always like, oh, I got 150 emails in my inbox. Yeah. I'm like, that's terrible. If I had 150 emails in my inbox, I would never pay attention to anything because I'd always be stressed trying to get through it. So I move it. So I can look at my inbox and know there's nothing in it. And that way, if something urgent comes in, that's one of four emails potentially in my inbox at any time. And I see it. I see it pop up. I go in. Is there anything? Oh, my God, something urgent. I got a response. And I know. Otherwise, I move it to one or I move it to two. So I keep that inbox free. I think that's keeps me on my toes. It keeps me always responding to stuff. Got it. And so last one is, you know, besides the plugged in podcast and for my listeners out there, which is growing. Um, make sure you rate uh, on rate us on uh, iTunes and on Google and on Spotify. Ratings definitely help us get noticed. Um, do you listen to podcasts? And if so, which podcast do you listen to? I listen to a few. I don't. I don't. I I read a lot more from a from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. The podcasts I read to are more like the true crime story <laughs> kind of stuff. You yeah. Know, whether it's like serial. Yeah. Or or some of these. Um, crazy murder mystery type stuff. That's what I generally will listen to from a from a podcast standpoint. Okay. Um, but 
other than that, on the, on the business side, I'm generally more of a reader, um, but I definitely want to catch up on a lot of what you've been interviewing because <laughs> a lot of the guys you've been interviewing are interesting guys that I know in the space and I have admiration for as well. And I'd love to hear, now that I know what this dialogue <laughs> is and how it goes, I'd love to hear how they answer these questions and yeah. what their trials and tribulations are and see how... How similar, similar. Well, I, I will say there's a, a ton of similarities. I mean, the one thing I've realized is, you know, CEOs, entrepreneurs as a whole, it's just perseverance. You know, it's one of the main things. You just got to persevere. You know, it's like, you know, you come through a tough time and, you know, sh- you know shit happens. Yep. Just, you know, you know, just push it aside and just move on. So anyways, Mike, thank you so much. It's great. It's great. To, great to have you. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.